This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Anson Dorrance is one of the most iconic figures in American athletics. What I learned from this interview was that his addiction to winning started long before he became the most successful college coach in soccer history. I'll admit, it was super intimidating interviewing Anson. For number one, I guess, it's rare that I conduct interviews in person. I'm used to doing these over the phone or via Skype, but... Uh, this interview I actually conducted at Anson Dorns's kitchen table. So that was a super cool experience, but again, intimidating. That wasn't what was really bothering me though. What was really bothering me and, and intimidating me was trying to figure out what I could possibly ask a guy that has literally won everything and has been interviewed by everyone under the sun about it. He's written books about it and he's literally been interviewed by every major media outlet that you can think of. And here I am with this little podcast sitting at his kitchen table, uh, trying to figure out what to ask him. It was a little bit intimidating, to, to say the least. But I, uh, I wanted to take a different approach, I guess. And so I started off with some questions about the artwork hanging around his house. And after we finished the interview, he actually complimented me and said that nobody has ever asked him about that before. So I felt pretty proud of that. But after talking a little bit about art and where he was from and, and the beginnings of you know his life and, and childhood and experiences with the game, we started to discuss some of the most important topics we face here in American soccer. Specifically, having a clear and identifiable style of play, not separating winning and development, and the mentality that players need to have in order to make it at the top, top level. Hopefully, you will be able to connect some of the dots throughout our conversation, but it's obvious that Anson values many of the same aspects of the game that we do here at 343. Specifically, the pursuit of excellence and demanding the most out of your players in every situation. After we wrapped up the interview, Anson spent about 20 more minutes talking to us about how much of an influence Argentine coaches like Bielsa and Minotti had on him, and guys like Pep and how much respect he has for the work that he's done. He talked about the importance of having small societies and creating partnerships between players who play next to each other. He said that building that clear identity and having a plan and having players who want to execute that plan have been crucial to his success. It's funny because after so many years of interviewing Brian Clyburn and talking about his success and his style of play and the coaches that have had an influence on him, it was almost identical to Anson's story at times. And there is also another connection between Brian and Anson that is worth mentioning. Brian's success on the boys' side of the game is fairly well-known and documented, as you can see through the 343 Coaching Education Program, but it's lesser known that Brian spent several years coaching girls' soccer in Southern California at the beginning of his coaching career. And when you think about the style of play and the mentality and the identity that Brian has been instilling in his players since day one, it should really be no surprise that some of his former female players, like Taylor Ramirez and Brooke Elby, captured the attention of Anson Dorrance, a coach who values many of those same aspects. There is an actual letter that Brian wrote to Anson about one of his players uh, several years ago 
that you can find on 343coaching.com. And I think that you would get a kick out of reading that after listening to this interview and after kind of getting a feel for what Anson values and also connecting the dots back to 343. But like I mentioned, a lot of Brian's work on the boy side of the game has been documented. Years worth of actual training and match footage are what makes up the entire 343 coaching education program. And it's that program that is the culmination of all of Brian's experiences, including studying legendary coaches like Bielsa and Pep and creating a winning style of play and tradition here in America, just like Anson has done. If you're already a 343 Premium member, you've witnessed the training sessions and you've seen the match footage and the building blocks that can help transform you into a far better coach. If you're not a 343 member, or if you're just finding us for the first time, you are probably wondering what we are all about. No problem. You can get a feel for what we do and how we do it and why we do it by signing up for our free course. We actually highly recommend starting there. But whenever you think you are ready, the 343 Premium Membership will be there waiting for you. To learn more about that and find more episodes of this podcast and to just take a look around 343 and to see what we have and what we're all about, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 34 and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. I hope that you enjoy this interview with Anton Dorrance. So I actually, I want to ask you about this big dragon that's staring at me first. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about this. This uh... Sure. My, uh, <laughs> both my parents were born in mainland China. Uh-huh. And uh, so uh, a lot of the stuff you see on the walls uh, are my mother's Chinese artwork. Uh, Her artwork? Yeah, she was uh, actually trained by the uh, top uh, Chinese artist in the free world. She was a professional artist when she married my dad she was doing commercial art but uh, if you uh, go back to where you walked into the hall you're going to see her paintings that have won grand prizes at different uh, major art shows so she was a uh, a wonderful artist in her own right and then uh, as she got older she decided to study uh, uh, Chinese brushwork uh, and uh, the top Chinese artist in the free world was uh, working in New York when she was a living in Connecticut, so she started studying under this uh, extraordinary Chinese artist and was her uh, top uh, American student. And so almost all the artwork you can see around the house is her stuff. So we've got this connection with uh, Chinese art. And so if you look around the the room and the house, you will see all these pieces that are hers. And so the the headpiece, which came from a, uh, a ballet my wife was doing, uh, is, is just a classical you know Chinese dragon where you know one person is the head and you know seven or eight other dancers are the uh, body and tail and so she was uh, producing one of those pieces and just liked the dragon piece and took it home with her and it is an attractive piece and if you see where it's sitting relative to the art around it, it it fits sort of in the color scheme and also the color scheme of the house which is sort of like a a, a redwood you know, backdrop with our wood, and so it sort of uh, falls into that, so we think it sort of matches the decor. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I was looking around the room as you were getting the other guys' drinks, and, and 
I noticed the dragon stood out to me, and then I kind of looked around, and I noticed the other kind of Asian-inspired pieces of artwork, and I was like, okay, and this is an interesting piece of the story, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, both my parents were there. My dad was there with uh, Standard Oil of New Jersey. Uh, he was, uh, that's my granddad's side, so that was my, uh, my dad's connection uh, to China when he was born there. And then my mother's side of the family is the North Carolina side. They were in China with American tobacco, so these were basically the two most powerful imperialistic American families living in China. And uh, through, you know, social interaction, uh, uh, the family certainly knew each other. And then both sets of grandparents got divorced, and my mother's father married my father's mother and bought a farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina. So all the places we've lived overseas. After three months in a, a location somewhere, we'd come back and spend six months on this tobacco farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina, visiting, in effect, both sides of the family, my mother's side and my father's side. Uh, so uh, that was sort of a, uh, an interesting uh, conundrum for me to try to sort out while I was uh, growing up to see them, uh, you know, basically uh, involved with uh, both sets of uh, uh my grandparents so for me uh, it was always sort of an interesting upbringing because of that maybe this is a piece i don't i'm not sure if, if people brought this up in other interviews but mm -hmm. i didn't know going into this that you weren't born here in america and, and you were actually born somewhere else where were you born and, and you kind of talk a little bit about the travels back and forth when did when did you find soccer here in America, or did you discover the game somewhere else, maybe? Yeah, I was uh, uh, born in Bombay, India. My uh, family lived there for uh, the first three years of my life. Then they moved to uh, Calcutta. Uh, there was another uh, uh, sister born in uh, Bombay. A brother was born in Calcutta. We moved to Nairobi, Kenya. And in between all these trips, we're spending six months in this tobacco farm. But in Nairobi, another brother was born. And then we moved to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and that's actually where I met my wife uh, in the second grade. Her dad was there as the air attache to the Ethiopian government, and mine was there uh, with, by this time, uh, mobile oil. So by then, the uh, standard uh, monopoly was broken into Exxon and mobile. My dad went with mobile. And from there, uh, uh, we actually spent uh, uh, a little bit of time in Oakland, California, before moving to Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, spent three years there, came back, and on their way back, in addition to spending six, six months on the tobacco farm in Lewisburg, we moved to White Plains, New York, and then moved to Brussels, Belgium. Uh, while my family was living in Brussels, I was sent to a Swiss boarding school. I started playing soccer in Ethiopia, uh, but not as a passion, just as a, you know, a, a recreation game at recess. I wasn't on a team. You know, during our recess periods, we would just... Uh, run out there and just start kicking the ball around. To be honest, I wasn't really any good. Um, but I had some exposure to the game back there. Um, Would you say that was more like, like pickup soccer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were just out there uh, recreating. And to be completely honest, I probably played these marbles and rock-throwing games more often than soccer. I mean, uh, because I was this rich, you know, white kid, and this was uh, actually an African school, they loved playing marbles with me because my marbles were new, and there were a way that they could win my marbles off me. But, of course, this is the beginning of me deciding to try to beat everyone to death and everything. I became pretty good at marbles, and it was hard for them to take them off me. I became pretty good at the rock-throwing game. 
Um, and so, and I would love to pretend to tell you that I was pretty good at the soccer games I was playing in, but I honestly wasn't at all. Of the three games, the marbles games, the rock throwing games, and the soccer game, I was the worst in soccer. <laughs> uh, but I still played it, you know, with all the other uh, uh, boys uh, and uh, enjoyed it like I would enjoy everything else. Uh, there's not a sport out there I don't absolutely love to play. I just uh, have always enjoyed uh, games and sports and uh, uh, traveling so much. It was actually an entree into whatever social circle was, you know, where we had moved to. So whatever culture I moved into, I would try to learn that sport. So as a result, uh, um, I was a four-time intramural basketball champion because I lived in Singapore. And, of course, the Southeast Asians in badminton are pretty good. So I became a pretty good badminton player. And so I have all these really esoteric skill sets uh, that are just because of the places I lived in. And they're all tied around, you know, one sport or another. Um, and uh, I've loved it. I mean, it's been uh, it's been my life. I couldn't, you know, just fathom that, you know, at the age of 67, I could still be living off, you know, sport because uh, I've never really pursued it as a as a profession until I fell into uh, coaching the team that the guy I played for in college retired from. Uh, but for me, it's just been a extraordinarily uh, fortunate series of events that have kept me in this position. I want to go back to something you mentioned about the, the marbles and the rock throwing game. And, and I think if, if I remember the quote exactly, it's like you learned how to beat people to death, you know, in, in, the, in these games. And, and I wanted to ask you if you, if you could put a time stamp on that. Like, were you five years old, six years old, seven? When, when did that competitive drive enter your... I guess uh, whatever the second grade is. Okay. So how old are you in the second yeah, grade? Seven or eight. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, for me, uh, uh, it was... Yeah, all right. You want to play marbles? All right. You want to, you know, win the rich kids' marbles? Well, you better be pretty good. Because <laughs> I'm not going to hand them over to you. And so I had no issue competing in all these games. The rock throwing game was they had these cigarette boxes in, in Ethiopia. Uh, I don't know, cat of nine tails uh, cigarettes or something. And so what we would do with these cigarette boxes is we'd cut them up. And then based on the color of the cigarette box, uh, the cards had value. And so you would stand uh, maybe about, you know, five to ten yards away from a circle with these cardboard cutouts in there, and you'd throw your rock at it, so much so that we all had favorite rocks. So you would carry your favorite rock in your back pocket, <laughs> and then when the game began, you'd whip out your rock. And then all of a sudden, you know, extraordinarily, um, this sort of played into everything else because as I was growing up, I really learned how to throw and I ended up playing softball uh, all over the world, uh, and I can throw. I can. I even used to throw batting practice for our softball team here, because I can. I can. <laughs> I can bring the heat, and all these sort of things added up. Just because uh, there wasn't a game out there, I didn't, you know, love to jump into. Um, and uh, it was almost like this cross-training experience, going from one culture to another to, to learn all the different nuances, not just of the culture, but of the competitive games within the culture and I absolutely loved it I thrived in it and uh, came to UNC uh, um, it was hilarious I jumped into Teague dorm when I transferred in here after one semester at St. Mary's University in San Antonio Texas and the intramural director comes in uh, 
and he was wonderful. He had this clipboard of all the winter and spring sports, and I had just moved into the dorm, and he said, uh, you know, uh, hello, Anson, you know, I'm the intramural director here in T. We take intramurals here at UNC very seriously, and and uh, here, once you look at these sports and tell me which ones you want to compete in for the dorm, and we'll have tryouts, you know, for the dorm teams, and just tell me which sports you want to uh, uh, compete in. So he handed me the clipboard, and I looked at all the sports, and I handed it back to him. I said, if you want to win, put me on every single team. <laughs> and he thought I was joking. I wasn't joking. So he put me on every single team. We proceeded to start to beat everyone to death and everything. And then we started an 11-year intramural sports dynasty in Teague because we started winning in everything. And I took it seriously. I would train my teams, teach them, you know, principles of winning in tennis, badminton, wrestling, horseshoes. You know, you name the sport. And this is from a student, when you, the time when you were a student. Correct. So we started this wonderful intramural sports dynasty that they tried to break up several times. Uh, uh, my favorite time, they tried to break us up by cutting the dorm in half and thinking that would dilute the teams enough so there would be more balance on campus. So what we did is we had all the athletes move to the same two floors. <laughs> and we even started recruiting. Uh, the athletes in the dorm would tell me this great athlete that had just been admitted to UNC and we would, you know, call him up and convince him to put down Teague Dorm as his dorm of choice. And so we'd be recruiting all these great high school athletes coming in, and we'd train them in all the different sports because very few people would come in as professional horseshoe players. Uh, but every sport counted the same amount, you know. Um, and I could certainly sweep the rackets. I could sweep, you know, tennis and badminton, you know, and all the racket sports. I had no trouble you know, teaching my colleagues how to win in all those. And since uh, the wrestling season was always right after the soccer season, I was a judo expert in high school. Uh, so uh, even though I, I've never wrestled, the principles are somewhat similar. Uh, and also I was very fit, and there was no way anyone my weight could whip me. So I'd go in and beat these guys that were all high school wrestlers in their own sport because I was going to, you know, tear them limb from limb. So much so that I won every year. I won the intramural wrestling championship every year. And I was going into my senior year. I was so confident I was going to win again. I invited my entire fraternity to come watch this four-year sweep. And I lost to a cheerleader in the finals, which uh, <laughs> they remind me of on a regular basis whenever there's a fraternity reunion. Uh, but I just loved uh, I loved all sports. I mean, there wasn't a sport out there I didn't uh, absolutely enjoy playing. And you hit on two of the major themes I think uh, people will recognize you for throughout your time as a UNC head coach with the women's program, winning and recruiting. And I think mm -hmm. if, if people think about your time, you know, your, the dynasty that you've created with, with that program, it has been a part of your life since you were a seven-year-old living abroad. No, absolutely. And uh, I've always uh, you know, felt like the quality that separated me when I played sports was my ability to to compete uh so uh, uh that was that was always my weapon because i've always been uh, undersized um and so there's got to be something that yeah, keeps you in the game and so what always kept me in the game uh, even though uh, growing up i was uh through high school small for my age uh, the competitive fire was never something i lacked and all these people that think they are competitive they have no idea they have no idea. Everyone likes to think they're competitive. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm really competitive. I hate to lose. Uh-huh, okay, good. 
And then one of my favorite games in the dorm was uh, I would come back in, and of course, all my dorm mates uh, uh, and suite mates uh, would, you know, ask me how the last event went. And I always had this ritual. I would always, uh, you know, talk about my respect for my opponent. So I'd always come in and say, I'll tell you, you know, this time this guy was, this guy was good. In fact, this is one of the best athletes I've ever faced. In fact, he was so extraordinary. I mean, he just went up and back, and uh, just very, very difficult. And they're all asking me how it went, and then I would finally conclude with, you know, and I just beat him to death. So, <laughs> so no mercy. Well, it was just that you know it was a joke because you know um, when I would walk in, uh, I would try to pretend like I had lost, and I would talk about how incredible my opponent was, and then the yeah the concluding line was, uh, yeah, I just destroyed him. <laughs> um, and it was, it was, you know, because even though, yeah, I love sports and I love competing, I've never taken myself that seriously. Um, you know, when I lose, uh, you know, okay, you know, but, uh, I just enjoy the whole ritual of the, the sporting culture and, you know, competing and, and, but also making light of it, uh, which I think, uh, uh certainly is very healthy. Um, and, um, and I just, I absolutely love it even now. Um, the 6 p.m. thing, uh, there might be a hockey game organized out there. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to get fit for this over 65 event in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, and I'm going to go out there to play hockey just to see if I can deepen my fitness base so that I can have some value in the over 65 division, uh, which starts in a week and a half. That's awesome. Um, I, I always try to try to treat these things like conversations and I, I don't come in with too many planned questions because I feel like if I come in with too many planned questions, it's going to let the conversation go somewhere completely different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Than, than I want it to. But winning and, and the way that you've done it over the course of your entire life is obviously something that I, I do want to talk about. And, and maybe we can try to relate it to one of the current events that's, that's kind of happening now where development has become a word that's almost replaced winning. In, in a way, um, and you're kind of getting excited. You're taking a drink of your water right now. Like you might have something to say about this. So I'm curious to get your opinion on, on the mentality change that has maybe been, been happening or the shift in mentality because you are such a winner and it means so much to you and has mean so much to you for so long. So what, what are your thoughts on winning versus development? Yeah, I think, uh, what everyone tries to do, uh, and maybe somewhat to protect themselves or maybe to, uh, they've, they've seen instances where, uh, the priority to win has interfered with development, and I think these are all completely legitimate concerns. Um, but I don't separate the two. I think you can marry the two in a very, uh, uh, I guess, productive way. And I've never tried to separate them. It doesn't mean that uh, at a youth level, if you really want to win, um, all you've got to do at, let's say, a U10 to U12 level is to put uh, a couple fast guys up front have a couple guys in the back with a good leg and smack it over the top and have your fast guys run onto it and, and finish it. And that's probably the most efficient and effective way to, to win at a youth level. But it doesn't develop them. So I think what ends up being framed, what ends up being framed is this discussion that the player development uh, uh, experts uh, want to mitigate. And uh, they're, they do well to mitigate that. But what they sometimes confuse, and some don't, by the way, some have a, a positive understanding of of development and how it is married to winning. Because I think, uh, and whenever you're involved in doing anything, um, a part of the motivational, uh, I guess, fabric 
for the session you're running is to figure out a way to win whatever you're masterminding, whatever game you've designed. Uh, part of the character to try to drive performance has to be the ambition to try to win it. But if you want to truly develop uh, a team effectively, especially at a youth level, one of the most effective ways to improve and encourage the correct kind of development is to certainly have them try to win, but have them try to win by playing through the line. So ideally, you know, the goalkeeper gets it, rolls it out, you know, the backs try to play a favorable ball into midfield that can be kept. Uh, a couple of players out of the back have to move into midfield to have, you know, numerical superiority superiority around the ball so they can effectively play it forward and then again have more players out of the back or midfield again get forward to again create a numbers up environment to create something in the attacking third so uh, I think uh, that's certainly uh, what development's all about so you want to try to uh, I guess create a philosophy of player development that doesn't have as its priority uh, the most effective way to win because the most effective way to win at a U12 level is what I've described. Guys that can smash it out of the back, some guys with pace up front because then you don't have the risk of getting a ball nicked in your defensive third that may end up in the back of your net or one nicked in midfield. And it's just such a simple way. And if you think about it, that was the, that was the game in the old days. I mean, that was uh, the way teams effectively played. And people can make argu arguments for that. Uh, and then, of course, what you can see is the travesty of someone that takes the opposite, the indirect game, to such an extent that even with 11 superior players in the field, Spain can lose to Russia. What was one of the reasons they lost? They were too indirect. Uh, I think they set a World Cup record for number of passes, and they were eliminated on penalty kicks. And so you can go from one extreme to the other, and you can certainly uh, give reasons for what's effective for winning or not, or what's effective for development or not. But ultimately, what you've got to figure out is a way to win at the highest level. So right now, we're witnessing the highest level, and you're seeing all the different extremes of figuring out a way to win a game that doesn't always reward the superior team. So maybe somewhere in that mix is a player development platform, which I believe in, which is the perfect combination of the direct and indirect game. So you certainly want to be able to play indirect by playing through the lines. That certainly has to be a part of your playing personality. But you also have to be able to play direct. Because uh, if you don't have the capacity to play indirect and direct and the counterattacking game, which is a combination of both, uh, it's going to be difficult based on the team you're playing against and what they're trying to do to stop and prevent you from winning. Um, but I don't want to separate the two. I think uh, too often uh, the people that are interested in development are too eager not to have the responsibility of winning. And I think oftentimes it protects them within their culture because then the way they're protected, uh, the way a coach that's required to win is not protected it is by saying, okay, um, uh, no big deal, you know, we were just thumped again, but, uh, you know, we connected on more passes than anyone else, and, and uh, we're really enhancing development. But I think there's this, this environment where <clears throat> you're training more than just a player's skill set. You're also training mentality. And I think a part of training mentality is training people to win. And it's not like, oh, I have extraordinary technique because I've been in these wonderful player development environments my whole life. And as a result, I've got a remarkable skill set. I'm very sophisticated tactically. Uh, but 
because I've never been asked to win, because, of course, there's a difference between winning and development in the eyes of some, they become these technical you know, masters without basically any sort of result. So I think the best coaches, and there are certainly many of them out, out there, that understand that it's a combination of both. The question is, at what age in the 11v11 environment or 9v9 or 7v7 or whatever your ultimate uh, level is for your age, there has to be something about competing to win. Because then I think uh, your moral imperative is to develop everything. Yes, develop a technical skill set. Yes, develop a tactical uh, idea. Yes, get the kids to make good decisions on the ball. But also get them to sort out that uh, they've got to make a difference to win this thing. And that comes from that comes from a different place. And for someone to pretend that it comes from this player that has developed perfect technique, I don't think really understands a lot about the game. Uh, because the game involves all the different elements uh, that I absolutely love. And so what I truly love about soccer, and keep in mind from our earlier discussion, I love all games. Um, but there's some that are games and there's some that are sports. And the way I divide my games and my sports, in sport there has to be some kind of physical risk. I'm a gamesman, but I'm also a sportsman, and I know the line and the difference between the two. And so I consider tennis a game. I've played a lot of tennis. I consider badminton a game. I consider soccer a sport. And what do I like about what elevates soccer to sport is because uh, there are going to be elements in a soccer game where I have to decide whether or not this physical risk is worth it whether I want to risk having my head ripped off by a goalkeeper with this ball that's served in the box or this 50-50 ball between me and the center back for the other team who's been just destroying every player on my team. And I have to decide whether or not I want to go in with him. Um, and I love that element in our sport, um, which is why I am absolutely being driven nuts by all of the acting we're seeing in this World Cup. <laughs> With the VAR available to us, I think, uh, you know, someone like Neymar has to be chastised uh, for his rolling around like he's been shot by a sniper. Um, it's just ridiculous. And I think uh, uh, there, we've got to give the referees additional tools. I think the yellow card uh, doesn't really hurt the team in the match that it should hurt. Because if I get a yellow card, that's, and that's all point. I have in the game. That's I'm not point. really damaging uh, my team unless I accumulate yellow cards, and then I'm actually benefiting a future team. So we've got to give the referees an additional piece. I think we've got to give them a sin bin because everyone loves to play. So if Neymar's rolling around, you just walk up to him and say, hey, Neymar, why don't you roll around over there for 20 minutes because your team's <laughs> going to be playing a man down. And so I think there are additional weapons we've got to give the referee to continue to preserve our game, which is an incredible game. And uh, all these different elements, I think, tie into this sort of winning player development thing. And the psychological dimension is something we can't ignore. And I don't want this winning thing separated from development. I want to go back to something that you mentioned, talking about this winning versus development and how the game has kind of evolved. And, and you gave two good examples of, you know, maybe back when you started coaching at the college of, you know, very direct style of play. And then now fast forward, you know, X amount of years, 
and we're starting to see the exact kind of the polar opposite of, of teams, you know, trying to play a little bit more indirect, or you gave the example of Spain versus Russia in the world cup. How have you evolved as a coach over, over that time? And, and if do you, do you maybe remember anything specific that maybe changed the way that you did anything, or I'd be very curious to hear if you've just stuck to your guns and, and done the same exact thing and, and you believe so much in a philosophy that it wasn't worth changing. Well, the aspects of our uh, philosophy that's never changed is the press. So we've always believed in trying to press for 90. So uh, we don't play a low line of confrontation and allow the other team to come out. And then at the tangent of the center circle, we start basically like, drawing a line in the sand. I've never believed in that. I've always believed in trying to press for 90. Since we've always believed in pressing for 90, we've always, always believed in uh, uh, substituting the players that can't play at a sprint for 90 minutes. Uh, and so that philosophy has always been with us from the beginning. What's changed is uh, the combination of the direct and indirect game. Because originally, uh, what we could do is just wear a team out because most teams uh, are coached by soccer purists that don't believe in substitution. So we could play a direct game and just wear them out by uh, rotating in uh, uh, frontline players uh, if my uh, frontline players were fatiguing. Uh, and uh, that would wear them out. Uh, but now the average level of the average player, the press is no longer as effective as it used to be. It doesn't mean we've stopped pressing, but now uh, very good teams can play effectively through uh, even a good press. And so now we need uh, more opportunities to uh, uh, basically figure out ways to win. And so what's evolved over time is uh, we, we are now playing through the lines. If you look at our possessional percentages, and all this is a matter of public record because all of us are in pro zone now, we're one of the top teams in the country in terms of keeping possession. Uh, but even back during stretches when uh, we were still predominantly a direct team, we still dominated possession. And one of the reasons we dominated possession is because we didn't let the other team possess. So whereas most teams would have a comfortable area of the field to play the indirect game, they didn't have a comfortable area of the field to play against us in their indirect game because we'd be pressing them in their uh, defensive third. In fact, the uh, match I'm most proud of, of us pressing in the other team's defensive third was the World Cup semifinal in 1991 where the Germans, who were coached by a gentleman by the name of Giro Byzance, who was the director of German coaching, so this wasn't an ordinary coach. This was the guy that taught the coaches in the Bundesliga how to coach. He was coaching the women's national team for Germany. So I was looking at his team, and I said, okay. He just rolled right into the way we were going to play, because we're going to press them for 90 minutes, and we beat them 5-2. to two. And the press conference following that, uh, probably the greatest uh, World Cup victory I ever had in 91 was that game in the semifinal. And he was so upset with the humiliation of losing 5-2, to two, he basically claimed that we cheated. And uh, what was the nature of our cheating? Well, we pressed. In other words, we didn't let him play the ball from the right back to the inside center, right back to the left back, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We were all over them, winning balls in their defensive third and counterattacking immediately and you know, pouring one goal after another in, into the back of his net. And so uh, um, I really feel like uh, the uh, pressing game that we've played 
uh, is the challenge for the people that want to play the predominantly Barcelona indirect game. Uh, and uh, that has served us incredibly well uh, because uh, it's put us in a remarkable position because everyone's on the assumption that uh, we've always won because we've out-recruited everyone. I've always, because I am competitive, I keep track of how often <laughs> I lose a recruit to a school. We've gone head-to-head with Stanford uh, 46 times. We have won six duels against them. They've won 40, and we've won six. We've played Stanford uh, 13 times. They've beaten us once. So uh, I think a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do makes us difficult to play against. Uh, UCLA the same way. They've, they beat us consistently in recruiting. Same thing. We've played them 13 times. They've beaten us once. So even against schools that out-recruit us on a consistent basis, uh, we've developed a philosophy that's difficult to play against. Part of that is the press, and a part of it now is trying to play a combination of the direct and indirect game, which honestly is what the U.S. keeps going back to. Whenever uh, <clears throat> our national coaches get criticized for uh, playing the direct game, they'd be crazy not to play that combination. When you've got players with extraordinary speed up front and you try to play the game entirely indirectly, all you've got to do is to go back to the most recent Spain-Russia game and see how, you know what, um, despite incredible talent, going with one kind of game is just not effective. So I think what's going to be really critical for us in our development is to train all of our players to be <clears throat> universalists in this respect. Let's uh, teach them... Uh, to play both kinds of games and actually throw in the additional piece, which everyone is doing now, of the counterattack. So let's play the direct game. Let's play the indirect game. Let's play the counterattacking game. Let's play with whatever the other team gives us <clears throat> and not be sort of locked into one idea or another. And I think that's going to be uh, uh, put us in the best position and serve us the best. And that's uh, where our team is heading to right now. We're certainly in a position where we can play through the lines, but – if there's an option to get someone in over the top, take it. Because then what's going to happen, the team that's trying to compact the game, all of a sudden with any sort of exposure over the top, they're going to lose some compaction. And then that, what's that going to do for you? It's going to give you an opportunity to play the in, indirect game. So whatever they take away from you, <clears throat> um, attack what they've given you. Because uh, one of my favorite uh, expressions is the – Brazilian expression about how soccer is a poor man's blanket. If uh, your feet are cold, you move your blanket down to your feet, and now all of a sudden your shoulders are exposed and, and you're freezing again, so now you move the black blanket <laughs> up to your shoulders. And so what the analogy is trying to share with you is that that's what soccer systems are. You can't take everything away from me, <clears throat> but the only reason you can't take everything away from me is if... I am trained in how to exploit what you haven't taken away from me. And uh, if teams are going to uh, press and play with a compact space, <clears throat> you're going to go direct. And if you're not trained in it, you're not going to do it very effectively. Because here's what happens with us all the time. <clears throat> uh, teams uh, uh, that have struggled against us in playing the indirect game, now all of a sudden they've realized, you know what, maybe we should go direct. But because they play indirect all the time, we're masters of the game because the space we've given them is space over the top. And so this has happened so effectively for us in recruiting. These coaches that recruit against us saying, well, uh, 
I want you to watch uh, <clears throat> how we play. We play the indirect game. I'll go into the archives. I'll pull out our last game with them. And what are they doing against us? They're playing direct. You know why they're playing direct? Because we're not letting them play indirect. We're compacting space. We're playing in their third. And there's one space we've given them. Where is that space? It's over the top. So uh, I think that's the way every coach should try to develop his team. <clears throat> and then there are very astute coaches like Mark Krikorian, who coaches at Florida State, that comes into our game with the direct game as a plan. So what has he done all week? And he plays indirect. He plays a very good indirect game, but not when he plays North Carolina. So he comes in, and <laughs> I know what he's going to do. They're going to start smashing balls. You know, if we're in a 3-4-3, three, three, uh, the space to attack against the 3-4-3 three, three is on that space on the left shoulder of the left back, on the right shoulder of the right back. And as soon as you win it, don't even look. Just smash it there early because that's the only space that's given to you in transition. Now, eventually, obviously, even in a three-back, you end up in a four-back, but not in transition. I mean, that's when you're entirely exposed. And so I, uh, I like and respect coaches like that because he gets it. He gets it, you know. Uh, he's got to have the ability to basically take what he's given. And uh, <clears throat> that's uh, been our evolution is to certainly try to continue to win. Uh, and uh, now, because the teams are becoming more sophisticated, they're getting better and better and better at playing through the lines. Um, we have to as well. Um, and so uh, the evolution of everyone else's game is helping uh, our game evolve. And now what we would love to do in every game is to play a, a combination of both. And uh, one of my favorite Stanford games was I keep trying to tell the color commentators against when we play Stanford or anyone else to put up the possessional percentages. Because what shocks everyone is early in uh, the first half or I think late in the first half of a game against Stanford, who are certainly known for their possession, um, the color commentator was one of mine, Catherine, Catherine Reddick. And so she put up the possessional percentages, and it was extraordinary. It was like, you know, 63 for North Carolina and, you know, 37, you know, for Stanford. Um, but because we play a pressing game, people don't understand we have a possessional game too. But because it doesn't look like everyone else's possessional game of, you know, oh, well, I'll let you push it around the back. You let me push it around the back. And so the game looks like both teams are playing possession. <clears throat> My games are never going to look like that because we're not going to let anyone do that. But if you start to record the possessional percentages, uh, people are shocked when you record it and look at it and say, oh, my gosh, they are playing possession. It seems like one of the advantages that you've had as a coach and that your teams have had over the course of your coaching career has been an identity, like a, like a clear identity of this pressing, uh, this winning the ball back closer to the opponent's goal. Um, and, and another advantage seems like it has been a plan, like, like your teams understand what the plan is. And, and for a long time, I know myself as a, as a young player, I never knew what the objective really was on the field. My coach never really told us like, Hey, like, you know, this is a B and C and this is what we need to accomplish. And looking back on my youth career and my college career, I see that now, but as you're talking, I, I can kind of see how, how you've had the advantage or the upper hand on, on, you know, everybody over the course of, of your career and, and your teams have probably been massively prepared. When did you realize that 
th- that was going to give your teams the advantage, having a plan or having this, this identity? It wasn't just that, though. The other piece that's made all the difference in the world is it was actually something we had to do by necessity. Uh, back in the early national team days, when I was hired to coach the U.S. women's national team, the U.S. women's national team had never won a game in international competition. When I retired, we were world champions. <clears throat> we had to do it differently than most national teams because we never had the opportunity to train together. So what <clears throat> uh, we were very good at doing was convincing the kids to train on their own. So we would give them their training platforms. The easiest training platform to give kids that you can't get together to train with you is to have them play one-on-one. If you look at the American basketball culture, it's built on that. So if you're out there shooting hoops and I show up, within seconds, one of us will say, hey, you want to go? And we both know what that means. Let's see who the alpha is out here, and we'll play a 1v1 game to see who's you know, the best one-on-one player. <clears throat> That's a fabulous environment for player development because it develops all kinds of things. It develops your ability to defend me. It develops my ability to attack you and vice versa. So you're learning to defend and attack. I'm learning to defend and attack. But the best piece is I am developing my mentality. <clears throat> I'm developing my inner warrior to basically <clears throat> dominate you. So back in the old days when the U.S. Women's National Team couldn't get together that often, uh, we would have them play one-on-one all the time. And what was cool, it's very difficult for girls to play against their friends one-on-one. So who would they play one-on-one against? They'd play against their boyfriends. It's easier for them to play against their boyfriends one-on-one because the psychological tension that's so difficult for a girl to deal with when she's playing against one of her friends. And so what was really cool is then who would they choose? Well, Karen Jennings would pick uh, Jim Gabera to play against. Jim Gabera was the captain of the U.S. futsal team. This guy had some skill. So for Karen to beat Jim one-on-one, she had to really be doing something. And Michelle Aker, she's out there with a shooting coach, uh, Robbie Stahl, and all these different environments my girls were in, a lot of them are playing against boys one-on-one on a regular basis. And then when they came into camp, they knew what the first day was going to be all about. The first day was going to be about 1v1. And the way we would do it, because obviously we don't have all week to work on just one topic, the first day would be... Uh, the you know six defenders would get together and they'd play a 1v1 tournament among the six defenders so there'd be three 1v1 games going and every minute they've got a different opponent same with the six attackers and the six midfielders and then uh, the culminating game would be the winner in each bracket the first division player in each of the brackets the top defender top striker top midfielder and we'd probably have the top two strikers with the top midfielder, top defender, now playing one-on-one again, another round robin. <clears throat> so what the girls knew is they're going to be tested in 1v1, and of course, with our competitive cauldron. It's all a matter of public record. So the, the other thing that made a big difference for us is because of the fact we couldn't get them together to train regularly, they were trained in dueling. Because you can train your dueling without being a part of a team construct. So ironically this team that won a world championship didn't win it with possessional dominance it won it with pressing and it won it with in my front seven 
six out of the front seven players were not good 1v1. They were brilliant 1v1. So Karen Jennings could beat anyone 1v1. Michelle Lakers could beat anyone 1v1. Uh, April Heinrichs could beat anyone 1v1. Julie Fadi could beat anyone off the dribble. So could Christine Lilly, Mia Hamm. Those are the six of my starters in my front seven. The only playmaker in that group was Shannon Higgins. That was the only girl that would rather pass it around you than beat you off the dribble. So as a result, none of these key teams knew what to do because what they knew is every spot on the field, they were going to get carved 1v1. Uh, so we didn't develop this possessional idea until a lot later. Uh, because we didn't really have the opportunity to train together. Because if you want to develop a, a wonderful a possessional platform, you've got to train together. You can't, you know, via email or text messaging, <laughs> you know, develop a, you know, a possessional platform. But you can develop a dueling mentality. Uh, and so we built the team on our ability to duel and uh, our ability to press. So fitness takes care of the press, fitness plus mentality. So this competitive stuff I was talking about. It's a combination of both because you can be fit and not be able to press and you can be an incredibly great defensive player, but if you're not fit, you can't press. And so the element in pressing is not one aspect. It's not the fitness or the mentality. No, 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 no. Pressing is both. So that had to be developed um, and could be if everyone came in fit and then the environment was competitive as can be just to get on the field. That develops the pressing mentality. Then the 1v1 stuff, uh, they're working on it. Why? Because... That's the test. They all know it. And if they're not working on their 1v1 on a daily basis, they're not going to make, they're not going to get onto the field. So interestingly enough, that's what happened as we were developing the initial U.S. teams. Um, and it made all the difference in the world because we terrified teams. We strangled them. Our mentality was better. And even today, the thing that still separates the U.S. women's national team from any other team in the world is mentality. They know we're not going to give up, and they know we're going to win a lot of games late because we're fit and we have this incredible mentality. So that's the way developing the U.S. women's national team began for me, but also the way we've developed our UNC teams. I want to give you a weird compliment. I, I like the the language that you use when describing your style and describing the way, like your identity and, and how you've beaten teams to death and strangled the teams. It's, it's a, it's a weird compliment, but it's this mentality thing that you keep going back to. It's just that you want to win. And, and, and the way that you describe it is in my opinion, beautiful, but it, I think that if other people hear that they might cringe a little bit. I don't know if that, if, if, no, if no, that, absolutely. And I, and I would understand that. Um, but if they came into my culture, what they would see is they would see practice and games with that, but they would see the off-field stuff, which is the part where I don't take myself that seriously. Because mm-hmm. everything for me is funny. Um, and we're taking pieces out of the players on a regular basis. I mean, it's not entirely comfortable for the girl we're teasing, but everyone else is enjoying it, knowing fully well in the next five minutes going to be someone else. And the girl that was just suffering is not going to enjoy what I'm saying about <laughs> the other kid. I mean, uh, some of my favorite moments is actually one of my favorites was uh, when I was coaching. Uh, I, w- I was a men's coach for 13 years, and we had this kid uh, named uh, uh, Billy Propster that was absolutely cold cocked, and he's on the ground and he's writhing in pain and screaming and screaming and rolling around and screaming and rolling around. And I'm standing over him and I said, You know, Billy. Uh, if you were to die now, is this the way you would want us to remember you? 
And all of a sudden, the whole team started cracking up, and even he started laughing. So uh, we, uh, we've we never taken you know anything that seriously. And um, I have an English and philosophy degree. I love words. Um, I, I try to motivate people with language. I am motivated by language. Uh, I think... Uh, Understanding the correct word to select in the correct environment, I think, is a communication quality that uh, I think makes a difference for me because um, I think uh, my players are driven. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I take that very seriously. So uh, the language I'm selecting is not accidental. But also, if you're in the environment, um, I think you would appreciate it because the other language I'm using, which is laced with sarcasm and humor, uh, is pretty funny. Even if <laughs> you're the you know brunt of the humor, uh, because you're not always going to be. It's going to be someone else, of you course. know, in five minutes. So, um, and again, uh, we want to have fun, and we do. We we have a lot of fun. I want to talk about the the process that you maybe go through now with you know recruiting and, and finding players or how players even get on your radar you kind of described what the training environment was like with the national team back in the day when you guys couldn't get together for training and and i am also curious about how you were selecting players back then because there was no national league there was mm -hmm. there were you know there were other barriers back then but specifically about about how you find players today and, and the reason why it, it makes sense for me to bring it up as people that follow this podcast obviously know my connection to Brian Clyburn and and you know five six seven years ago I can't remember exactly when it was you found a couple of players that played for Brian and people don't necessarily remember Brian as a as a female coach or a coach of a female team so you know how did you find a player like Brooke Elby or Taylor Ramirez and and in this little team in Southern California and, and what's your recruiting process like for that I guess we saw Brooke in a camp. So uh, Brooke Elby came to our soccer camps. Uh, we really liked her. And actually what we liked about her was her mentality because her skill set was very average to poor. Mentality again. That's that word mentality. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what we liked about her. So there are kids we recruit that are purely for skill sets, hoping that if they don't have mentality, we can, uh, uh, we can develop some in them. But, uh, yeah, if a kid has an incredible mentality, uh, we can take that player somewhere. Because what I've learned over time is uh, – um, one of the worst things to be attracted to in recruiting is talent. Um, and talent is so overwhelmingly attractive when you're recruiting because what, what you're envisioning as a coach is, oh, my gosh, I remember having a player with that kind of talent, and we helped her get to the full national team. So you're looking at this talented kid, and you're, you're thinking, yep, I'm going to chase that kid because – that talent, I, I recognize that talent. That's so-and-so that, you know, ended up winning a gold medal in Athens or something. And so, yeah, we're going to chase that kid. And it's one of the most consistent mistakes I make because I end up recruiting talent. If I had a choice and I could see it, I would recruit athletic character. That's Brooke Elby. Brooke Elby is athletic character. And here are the elements of athletic character. They are self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball, love of playing the game, and now, of course, love of watching the game in grid. So it's an alchemy of those seven critical elements. And the, the girls that don't get to their potential are missing multiple elements there. Now, most girls don't watch the game. What's shocking to me is how few even elite females watch the game. It's just it's shocking. 
But what helps our girls is our girls that are dating elite men on our men's soccer team, which is why <laughs> I love that because then, of course, all the free moments for their boyfriends, they're sitting in front of, you know, Man City, Man U. I mean, they're watching the game. And even now, uh, assuming they're still connected in the summer, that's what they're watching. They're watching the World Cup. The girls don't watch it. Uh, and it's just shocking to me. But those other elements, self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, the love of the ball thing. If you don't love the ball, you're never going to develop a skill set because to master the ball, you have to love it. You have to love it. You have to love it enough to have it at your feet all the time so you absolutely master it. And uh, that's a critical element. Uh, so all these elements uh, make all the difference in the world. Um, and uh, we've made a lot of mistakes by recruiting talent and then all of a sudden bringing them in and then realizing, oh, my gosh, yeah, she's talented, but you know what? She doesn't really love the ball or doesn't really love playing the game. So there's a pickup game. Oh, no, 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 I'm having my, you know, my nails done or something. <laughs> so, no, I'm not going to make it. You know, so basically <clears throat> that kid's never going to make it no matter how talented. And yet a kid like Elby, who's not talented, is still playing professional soccer. And you can speak to uh, Brian. He'll tell you. I mean, she traps balls further than I can kick them. And yet she's playing professional soccer. Why? Because she has an extraordinary mentality. So, um, yeah, it's the athletic character that we can't see in the recruiting process that I wish we could see because then I wouldn't make mistakes in recruiting because I have drawers filled with uh, recruiting errors. And the major mistake I make is to bring in a talented kid that doesn't have athletic character. So I'm, I'm curious about the actual process then. So if, the, if this isn't something that you can see during the recruitment process, you can't, you know, you evaluate those seven things that you just identified. You know, what makes a player stand out? What, what, what brings a player onto your radar? Well, you know, obviously the things that are so simple to see actually, like, uh, you know, technical ability, uh, you know, decision-making, uh, certainly athletic ability. It's so easy to see an athlete. I mean, all of a sudden there's a breakaway and there's a separation. I mean, yeah, it's very easy to see all these different elements. The, the easiest thing to see is that. Yes, that's the easiest. Uh, the second easiest thing to see is actually skill set. Uh, a harder thing to see is decision-making. Um, but those are all visible. Uh, but I want a kid that's living on a never-ending ascension. I want them getting better every basically month. Uh, so I want them improving. I want because uh, we record everything. We know whether or not they're getting quicker, faster, more agile, you know, fitter. Uh, and we also have this, you know, cauldron where we're seeing whether or not they're fighting their way through the system and getting more and more competitive. We can see all these different elements, but it's very difficult to see this athletic character thing in the recruiting process, which is why we do rely on a lot of youth coaches to tell us uh, to make a comparison to a kid that they've sent us. Interesting. And then all of a sudden, this coach knows because he sent us this player, and this player has something in comparison to a previous player this coach has sent us. And those are the ones we obviously trust the most. Um, but there's some, uh, and they're being honest with you. They're not lying to you. They'll say, this is the most talented player I've ever recruited. Now, what they haven't included in this introduction is it's also the laziest um, <laughs> You know, blah, 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 blah. And there are other things that are going to cripple talent. Um, but, yeah, I would love to figure out a way to assess all of it because if I could assess all of it, I would make mistakes. And I, I make mistakes. That's an interesting interesting question or uh, topic, mistakes. And I, I had a, an opportunity a few years ago to interview Bob Bradley, and 
Um, and I think I even titled the episode like successes, failures and, and something, something, something. What failures stick out to you? Because you've been, you, I mean, a, a chronic winner. And what, what stands out to you the most as far as, you know, the opposite side of that? Well, um, we chase a kid and we've seen her and she's got talent. And now we can't sort out whether to offer her a full or a partial. <laughs> and then we decide, well, okay, I've got these three kids I want. I can get two of them for fulls or three of them for partials. Let's gamble. Let's see if we can sweep the table, get all three. And then you make partial offers to all three. And then you lose two of them. And you're in trouble. And I can go through name after name after name. The most visible one would be Abby Wambach. She came to campus. I think she was interested. We offered her a partial. (laughs) She goes to Florida. Florida offers her a full. I regret that one. (laughs) We were Rapino's first choice coming out of college, but she had a twin sister, fraternal twin. And uh, she had read my books growing up, and I loved her. But for me to get her, it was going to cost me two fulls because I had to bring her sister in with her. Now looking back, she was worth two fulls. (laughs) But at the time... Uh, I wasn't aware that that's how valuable Rapino is because I love watching Rapino play. And I know that just watching the way she plays, I would have loved recruiting her. And then we played against her sister because she and her sister ended up at Portland together. And her sister wasn't bad. Now, was she worth, worth a full at my level? No. But she would have gotten on the field. Uh, she wouldn't have played as much as uh, Megan, but she would have played. Um, and so looking back, that was a huge mistake. I should have said, all right, Megan, we'd love to sweep you and your sister in. Here are two fulls, and at the time, uh, you know, I didn't make it. So for me, a lot of my mistakes were not offering uh, a player that's ended up extraordinary, the amount of money that if we had offered it to her, she would have come. But by the same token, we've had other kids that have literally walked on that have ended up just world beaters. And so, uh, you know, we've won some of those, lost some of those, and so – it's just it's just tough. Ask any coach. I mean, they, we've all made you know mistakes like this, and 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 I'm not immune from those. You seem to have, in hearing you talk about it the way you just did, like having to figure out how to offer fulls and partials, and you know walk-ons and and you know stars, and how to manage that that whole system, and and going back to your playing philosophy of pressing and for for ninety minutes and and things like that. You seem to have mastered the environment that you work in and, and you, you understand, you know, exactly what you need to do to, to achieve your goals of, you know, chronic winning again. If there was one thing you could change about the environment that mm-hmm. you've, that you've mastered, what would it be? Hmm. I guess if I could go back and change the legislation in recruiting to only allow scholarship offers in a player's senior year, all of us would have made less mistakes. Explain that. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, You're allowed to make a, 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 well, until now, you were allowed to make a scholarship offer any time a player called you. Um, And as a result, as the 
recruiting ages got younger and younger because the players were afraid that if they didn't explore their first choice schools, they'd uh-huh. run out of money. Uh-huh. So now the players under a sort of a financial imperative to secure a scholarship by the time she's a sophomore at the latest, sometimes as early as a eighth grader or freshman, um, they're putting you under pressure to make a decision on them uh, because you would not want to lose this play- player, uh, certainly to a player uh, that you'd end up playing against. You're now making uh, a rash decision before she's fully developed. Um, I think if I could go back I would change the rule and uh, basically say that the first time you can make a scholarship offer to any athlete would be uh, in September 1st of their senior year. That leads, I guess, into a, in, into another topic, and I'm going to try to steer this into a, a, an ending direction, I guess. But um, advice for people and, and, and you know, advice for the young players that are going through this process now, the way that it is, even though it sounds like you, if that was something you could change, you would. And, and advice for the parents that are going through this process as well. What is something that, that you frequently see or experience as, as a coach in, in your environment that you think you could yeah, help, help the players with or help the parents with it at this time? Well, it depends on, uh, The position of the, the parents it depends on their financial position. It uh, depends on uh, um, basically, to some extent, ego management. Um, if we could figure out a way for the players not to be under the pressure to make a decision uh, early, I think that'd be best for the, the kid. Um, but it's hard because the parents are afraid of losing scholarship money. Um, but I think that would be, uh, that would be huge for their, their kid is to not put them under pressure to make an early decision. Um, we've had some parents that would actually call me up and say point blank, uh, you know, Anson, uh, uh, we've saved for, uh, college and uh, we're not going to put any uh, pressure on our daughter to make any commitment uh, until later Um, and then it's a relief because first of all you know that uh, they're not going to make a decision based on the size of the scholarship Uh, so that puts you at ease in fact we ended up with a windfall because of that we were recruiting a kid out of uh, Sacramento by the name of Tisha Venturini and her dad was a, a medical doctor and a really nice guy. And I was also recruiting two ass kickers from Long Island, uh, Rosalind Santana, who married Greg Berhalter, okay. <laughs> and uh, um, Daniel Egan, who married Claudio Reyna. Small world. So we're recruiting <laughs> these two kids out of Long Island, but we're also recruiting Tisha Venturini. And I hadn't made an offer to uh, Danielle or Roz, even though I wanted both of them, because I had all my money tied up in Tisha Venturini. So finally, I called the dad up, and I said, his name is his Chick Venturini. I said, Chick, I just want you to know uh, um, I'm losing my recruiting class, waiting for Tish to make her decision. Um, <laughs> do you know, you know the timing of her decision? And that's when he came right out, and he said, Anson, uh, I can afford to send her uh, wherever she wants to go to school. Please don't let... 
um, that interfere with your recruitment of my daughter? If she selects to come to North Carolina, we're not going to base it on the size of her scholarship. And I said, well, Chick, uh, with your permission, I'm going to take her scholarship money, I'm going to cut it in half, and I'm going to offer uh, it to two players I'm recruiting from Long Island. And he said, Anson, go ahead. Uh, my kid is not going to make her decision based on uh, your scholarship offer. Uh, if she wants to go to North Carolina, uh, Anson, I'm behind her 100%. Honestly, I'd love for her to go to North Carolina. I was thinking, <laughs> all right. So I literally hung the phone up. I called up Roz and Danielle, and they were just waiting for an offer. They both committed on the spot. <laughs> the next day, Venturini committed to us on nothing. Sorry. So, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. And then, of course, that was a part of that, I think, uh, incredible run of championships. And a part of it was that this full scholarship athlete, the dad, had no issue with sending his kid to school. So as a result, the players surrounding her kid were phenomenal. Why? Because he was paying the freight of everyone else's scholarship. Uh, So uh, whenever you get one of those, I mean, it's just a – it's a game changer. Uh, and uh, so, and we've had enough of those over the years that have made all the difference in the world. Uh, my favorite one, uh, I don't know if I can, I wonder if I can talk about her because she's coming in this fall. I guess she has because <laughs> she's already matriculated. Um, we've got a goalkeeper coming in this fall that's phenomenal. Um, and she was committed on books. And then all of a sudden my women's basketball coach goes to Charlotte to watch her play basketball. And she was overwhelmed. And my basketball coach comes back and says, Anson, uh, uh, I hear so-and-so's coming to, to Carolina. I said, yeah. And she says, what would you offer? I said, I offered her a book scholarship. <gasps> you can't offer her books? I said, why is that? She, she's committed on books. You can't offer her books. I mean, all the basketball coaches are going to offer her a full. We're going to lose her. I said, we're not going to lose her. I mean, this is an honorable girl, honorable family. She's coming on books. <laughs> Please let me offer her a full. I said, well, okay, if you want to offer a full, go ahead. But. You know, she's coming on books. So basically, to make a long story short, this phenomenal national youth team level goalkeeper is coming to play for me on a women's basketball full scholarship. <laughs> so uh, every now and again, uh, you know, uh, uh, things sort of work out. Um, but uh, obviously a lot of it's luck. But a lot of it obviously has to do with the uh, financial circumstances, the family you're dealing with. But it's not just that. It's also the ego balance. Because some of the uh, parents want to say that their kid's getting a, a, a full scholarship to a great school, and, and I understand that. Um, but then every now and again you run into a Chick Venturini, and he can handle it, and his ego's fine. And sure enough, his daughter came in and just kicked rear end for us for four years, ended up you know, winning an Olympic medal, scoring you know, on the, for the national team, and all of her dreams came true. And uh, a lot of that was because uh, – for her dad, it was a, it was just not an issue. Yeah. Let's. Uh, I I do want to ask you two more questions. Advice for for coaches, especially maybe young coaches that are that are trying to, you know, trying to find their way through this American coaching landscape. That's it can be fractured at you know in places and difficult to navigate at times. Um, you've had a unique perspective. Uh, from all your experience, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, what you might say to somebody that you that you come across as says, hey, "I want to be a coach." Yeah, I think uh, the most critical thing is to be a student of the game, and this is obviously a, a cliche. Uh, I hope all the coaches out there that are aspiring to get better uh, watch every World Cup game. I have watched every World Cup game, 
now to be completely honest, I haven't watched all 90 minutes of everything, <laughs> um, but I'll watch at least 15 minutes. I want to get a sense of the teams. I want to get a sense of the players and the teams, and then I'll accelerate through to the goals to see, you know, who won, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's critical to be a student of the game. And then also pick uh, the league that you want to follow uh, and follow that. Obviously, follow the Champions League. And uh, even, and I'm saying this to uh, women coaches of you know, young girls and women, uh, the university for the women's game is the men's game. And if we want to continue to develop our craft, we have to uh, understand where the men's game is, uh, where it's going, and how it applies to us. Uh, so basically, I have all of my kids uh, jump into the EPL. So I want every one of my kids to pick a team in the EPL to follow. Uh, I'll help them pick a player off the team I want them to emulate. So I want them to be a student of this particular player because they play their position or play like them. Uh, and so I want them to study that player, but also be a master of that team and be a part of that team's uh, fan culture. Um, uh, so that's absolutely critical. So all of us coaches out there have to, you know, study the game, certainly uh, world cups, uh, absolutely, but also national team games. And then we've got a team right here, a women's NWSL team. Um, I can't believe how few girls will go with me to watch them play. I mean, every now and again, they'll jump in, uh, heck one of our volunteer coaches is the assistant coach for the team. And, <laughs> You know, we, we struggle to get uh, our kids t uh, to watch the pro game. So that's what all of us as coaches should do. We should become students of the game. And then read everything. I mean, what's really cool about our access with the Internet, but also with there are so many great books out there. Uh, we should be reading constantly in, in our sport, and not just in our sport. We should be reading in the books around our sport. You know, uh, Daniel Coyle's The, the Talent Code, uh, Peak by Anderson, uh, um, you know, Bounce uh, by Saeed. I mean, all these different uh, books that are out there. Uh, I mean, I think Bounce is about ping pong. Um, so, yeah, there are all these books that all of us can learn something about. Uh, and then uh, uh, I read books about education. Uh, when the New York Times Sunday supplement comes, there's a, every month there's a, there's a whole section on education. I will flip through every single article and education because that's learning methodology. I want to know what the cutting edge thing is about learning. Um, and that's all we're doing. We're teachers. And so, uh, yeah, we've got to be masters of, of, of methodologies. Um, I'm always reading books in psychology because a part of our success is the athletic character we're talking about. I also believe that uh, uh, what drives winning, I think character drives winning. And so I'm a fan of uh, Brett Ledbetter and um, – uh, Becky Burley, the Florida coach, uh, who are uh, uh, missionaries for this What Drives Winning movement and the wonderful book that uh, Brett wrote. They have me come in to speak at their function. And I hate, you know, traveling, but they always convince me to come in. I always enjoy it. This last time I went in, I was uh, sitting there with Gino Oriyama, who obviously all of us and the women's game can learn something from. So I think you've got to uh, explore everything, explore everything that's written, explore all the people you respect and admire, and I don't care what the sport is. I'm a Brad Stevens fan. He coaches the Celtics. Why do I like following him with the Celtics? Because I almost saw him beat you know Duke when he was coaching at Butler. So he has a piece of my heart because there's nothing more fun than watching, you know, Duke losing something. So, you know, uh, Terry's over here on the sofa. He's probably well, no, out. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Even my wife taught at Duke for 33 years. I'm, 
Duke Hospital saved her life. I have a lot of respect for Duke, except in athletics. It's just fun, you know, with this rivalry <laughs> to watch them go down in flames and something. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm a Brad Stevens fan. He's absolutely brilliant. I mean, if you would read stuff that he would uh, talk about and write about with his basketball teams and seeing what he's done with the Celtics, he's got something to offer all of us at coach, even though it's not our sport. So we should be students of the game. We should be constant and voracious uh, readers. Uh, and we should uh, not pretend that we've mastered anything. Uh, because what I'm always afraid of with people that are gurus of masters of player development is they have a couple of ideas and they feel like this is going to solve, you know, all the problems of the world. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, four years later, we're all on a different tack for, for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, uh, let's embrace everything, uh, cause you can make a case for almost every single platform that's out there. Um, and don't be married to any uh, particular thing and assume that it's untouchable. Um, allow people to debate you in an area you're very confident about. Uh, one of my favorite things, I uh, quotes I read recently was, and I'm not going to get this perfectly right, but I think I'm going to get the theme, is one of the biggest mistakes all of us make is when we are completely married to something we think is unassailable. That's gets so many of us into trouble. Don't have a, your opinions in any area unassailable because that's the biggest mistake most of us make is to have an unassailable opinion on something and then allow that to dictate so many of your decisions. Because when I look back on the jackass I was as a 25-year-old, I can almost contradict everything I believe then with what I believe now. And I assume that, you know, by the time I'm 75 or 80, I'm going to be contradicting a lot of the stuff I believe in now. So don't be married to something like some intransigent fool thinking that just because I believe in this, that this is, you know, tablets handed down from Mount Sinai. <laughs> Always be, you know, available to change your mind and certainly look at anyone that presents a reasonable um, argument for something you're doing that that you think is unassailable because uh, um, I can go through almost every stage of my life and say, yep, uh, I don't believe that anymore. Yep, I don't believe that anymore. And so uh, let's open ourselves up as soon as possible because then uh, we're all going to become uh, better educated and, and certainly uh, get to our potential a lot faster. You mentioned that when you're 75 or 80 that you might you know see the the game differently or, or different views then I'm curious what's next for you do you do you want to be coaching at 75 80 and what do you th what do you think that looks like in a few years I don't know um they uh, just extended me another five-year contract congratulations which is, uh, uh, always good because you don't want to starve to death in old age <laughs> that was positive um and I really enjoy this uh but I enjoy a lot of things I, I enjoy teaching um, uh, I enjoy, uh, um, playing. I mean, I could be pretty fit right now if I didn't have a job and I'm going out <laughs> to Bellingham and if anyone in the field is fitter than I am, I'm going to be really pissed. Um, so maybe if I had fully retired by now, I'd be going into Bellingham a heck of a lot fitter. And that's, there's a motivation there because, you know, my job is interfering with, you know, being able to train three times a day. <laughs> so, uh. But anyway, I mean, there are a lot of things I'm interested in, uh, um, uh, but I absolutely love our game. 
uh, I love the people in our game. I love the kids I coach. Uh, I love my colleagues, even the, the people I've got to fight uh, because they make me better. Uh, there's very little about what I do that I don't enjoy. Uh, I love living in Chapel Hill. Um, I just can't believe the accidents that brought me here. Um, and uh, uh, I love uh, the direction our country's going in uh, on the soccer side. Uh, uh, the NWSL is a real league now. Uh, in the old days, the national team players bullied their coaches into you know, making their own decisions, and now the league's becoming completely legit. Our team continues to succeed at an international level. I think we're going to be competitive in this next World Cup. Um, I just like, you know, what's happening with this Utah franchise that came in where the owner is treating the uh, women he's, uh, he's hired with huge respect, which I think is going to improve the way all of the women in the league are treated. The college game continues to be vibrant. They're building me a new stadium. Uh, we're going to try to figure out a way to sell it out, and we want to see if, uh, uh, you know, Women's sports is still an impossible ticket. We want to see if we can resolve that conundrum before I retire. Um, so there are a lot of things that uh, I'm involved in right now that I thoroughly enjoy. So uh, um, I don't know what the future looks like, but I know I'm going to be enjoying it. I think that's an amazing spot to end. And while we're still recording, I want to say thank you for inviting me to your house and for being so gracious with your time and, and I look forward to just following the next steps of your amazing <laughs> journey all that's already you know well well documented and, and, and you're a legendary coach in this country and it's an honor to get a chance to interview you so. well I've thoroughly enjoyed it myself so John thank you Thank you to my guest, Anson Dorrance, and thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. I really, really appreciate it, and I really, really appreciate Anson opening up his house and inviting me and, and several others to come and hang out for a couple of hours. It was really interesting and exciting. So thank you to that. Thank you to you for listening. And if you want to find more information about the programs that we offer at 343, you can find all of that at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers, 343coaching, all spelled out, .com. And here is Tom Byer to talk a little bit about his experiences with taking one of our online coaching courses. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I liked about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. And it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop. Um, not just, you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. You can find more information about those programs that support this podcast on 343coaching.com. Once again, that's 343coaching, all spelled out, .com. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast.